Turn, if you would, to the 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. In preparation for today's lesson, I typed in the word hell into Google, and uh, the first thing that popped up was that hell has frozen over. <laughs> On Friday, it was minus 21 degrees in hell, Michigan. There are at least two theories about how the town of Hell, Michigan got its name. One of which is that the guy that actually founded the thing, they asked him what they should call the city, and he said, well, you can call it Hell for all I care. <laughs> anyway, we've been working our way through the 24th and 25th chapter of the book of Matthew. You remember the disciples wanted to impress Jesus, and they told him about the wonderful structures for the temple, and Jesus says it's all going away. There'll come a time when all of this will be torn down. And so when they got out of Jerusalem, they asked Jesus when this was going to happen. And he gave a discussion about the things that would precede the second coming of Christ. And we talked about uh, the tribulation, and we talked about all the different theories and timelines about the second coming. And we had four main points that we kept emphasizing, the first one being that Jesus is going to return. It's not a figurative, it's not a metaphor for something. He is physically going to return. Number two is that nobody knows when. Nobody knows when. In fact, Jesus says, if somebody tells you that I've returned and I'm out in the forest, don't go. Because when I return, everybody will know. It will be obvious to everyone. The third point is that there will be judgment. And the fourth point is we are called to be prepared. Last week's lesson, we looked at a series of parables talking about the necessity of being prepared. If you remember, we ended up with the one, the master went on a journey, but before he went, he gave one of his servants five talents, one two, and one one talent, and he left. The guy that made, had five made five more. The guy that had two made two more. The guy that had one was scared to death of his master, so he just buried it in the ground. And when he returned, the master praised the five, who had gotten five more, and he praised the two that had gotten two more, and he cursed the one because he had not used what he had given him to do the work of the kingdom. And we talked about the fact that God has given each and every one of us gifts, talents, experiences that empower us to do the will of God. He has not given all of us everything. In fact, I read a quote this week that was really good. Don't let what you can't do keep you from doing what you can do. Because so often we think, oh yeah, if I had what that person has, then I could do something. If I did, no, don't do that. God has given you something and he's put you in a place to do something. What is it? I don't know. To me, it's fascinating. Try this experiment. Go someplace in public and open your Bible and start reading it. 
Yesterday, I'm sitting there reading my Bible in public, and this guy comes up and starts talking to me. We're talking about the time he spent in prison, and we're talking about the Bible that he was reading in prison. And all. Why? I don't know. God does strange things. So, we're going to end up chapter 25 with one more discussion about the judgment. And then we're going to move back into chapter 26 where we restart the narrative. We've had a couple of chapters of teaching, and then we have the return of the narrative. So, let's see how far we can get in this. Verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Now, let's put on our blinders just for a moment. I don't recommend this as a general practice, but let's put on our blinders. Let's say you hadn't read the book of Romans, okay? You hadn't read Ephesians. You hadn't read all of Paul's letters. And you were looking at this passage of Jesus speaking to his disciples. What would it take to get into heaven? You're scared to answer this question. Because you know the answer is not the right answer. But it's got to be the right answer. Because Jesus is sitting here telling us. He is judging the people. He's got sheep and he's got goats. And he turns to the sheep and he refers to them as the righteous. He turns to them and says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was a stranger and you talked to me. I was in prison and you came and visited me. Come on in to heaven. If you look at this passage, you would begin to believe that what it took to get to heaven was doing these good deeds. And guess what? You're supposed to do these good deeds. We run into a dilemma, okay? Because in our minds, we want to jump back and forth between one of two camps. Now, one of the camps is wrong, by the way, but we'll get there later. There are those who preach a social gospel. What is the most important thing about 
the Scripture, it's doing good to other people. And if I do good to other people, it doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what I think about Jesus, as long as I'm doing good for other people. There's a well-known church in our community. I will not mention it by name. I read a sermon once by one of its previous pastors. Who was Jesus? Did you catch the title? Who was Jesus? He was a great man. He showed us how to live our lives, and he died. Bad theology. Bad theology. But the church was doing great deeds for the people of our community. They had taken this passage, and they had said, okay, what do we need to do? We need to feed the hungry. Woohoo! let's go feed the hungry. But there's a flip side. There are those who believe that since we know salvation is by grace and grace alone, it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what activities I'm involved in. It doesn't matter what actions I do. It just doesn't matter because guess what? It's all grace. The reality is that when God saves us, He saves all of us and He saves us to do good things. There isn't this dichotomy. Well, there shouldn't be this dichotomy between doing good and being in a right relationship with God. Do you remember earlier in the book of Matthew when we were working through the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus ended with a judgment discussion? And he said, we had all these people come. Oh, I did great things. I spoke in tongues. I prophesied in your name. And he said, go away. I never knew you because you did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So what is the answer? The answer is, if you see someone naked, you're supposed to clothe them. If you see somebody hungry, you're supposed to feed them. If they're thirsty, you're supposed to give them something to drink. Don't think that just because we are saved by grace, we are not expected to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world today. But... Also don't think that bad theology plus good works will save you because that won't work either. So, what does Jesus say? I was naked and you clothed me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And these people are kind of dumbfounded. Hmm, Jesus, I don't remember ever seeing you naked. I don't ever remember seeing you hungry. When did we do this for you? Now, if I were one of these people, I would not have brought that up just in case he decided to change his mind. But Jesus is telling the story, so he can tell it the way he wants. They ask, when did I see you and take care of you? And he adds the comment, when you've done it to the least of these, the least of my brothers, you've done it for me. Now, we can have a discussion about who is the brother. Because within the context of the scripture, we've seen that. Remember the um, 
Pharisees came to Jesus and they said, who is our brother that we have to take care of? And Jesus gave them the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember, you had the good Jewish man going on a trip. He's beaten up. The good Jewish priest walked the other side. The good Jewish person walks the other side. And the Samaritan, the wicked half-breed, takes care of him. And Jesus, at the end of the story, says, who was the brother in this story? Well, the guy that took care of him. You see, we have a tendency to want to focus, to shrink who is my brother. Whereas Jesus is continually trying to broaden that. Who is it that God has put in front of you right now to take care of? That's your brother. Go take care of them. Now, it is interesting when we talk about, I was in prison and you visited me, he might be talking about believers who are in prison who need to be visited. Now, they're not in prison now, but by the end of their careers, they will be. Many of these disciples will be thrown in prison. Now, that's a tricky subject, right? Because if somebody is in prison for being a believer and I go visit them, what am I doing? I'm telling the community that I'm with them. And that's a risky proposition. I, I don't want to do that. I'll stay over here and pray for them. I'll send them an anonymous letter. But by identifying with the person who is suffering for their faith, you are demonstrating your love of Christ. Now, you saw me, you did it to the least of these. What are some of the characteristics of the least of these? Number one, they're not going to pay you back. They're not. You are contributing to the need of someone with no expectation of ever getting it back. Where have we heard this before? Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Do your acts of righteousness in such a way that nobody will see what you're doing. Don't do it in order just to be praised by other people. So, what is the conclusion of all this? There are hungry people, feed them. Now, I might add, this may not just be people on the street. This may just be people who need to be invited over for a meal. They can probably eat, but they need to be invited to join the community. It always amazed me. We would be at our house, and we'd have a house full of our kids and a few extra. And one of my kids would come and go, can this extra stay for dinner? And I said, it's dinner time, and they're here. What are you going to do? Throw them out? You feed whoever's there. That's what hospitality is. So, the sheep, you saw me, you took care of me. Welcome. Good job. 
Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Same story, backwards. They had run into the least of these and had not ministered to them. Now, at this point, we need to have a brief discussion, and it will be brief because we actually talked about it several weeks ago. Remember our points. Jesus is returning, nobody knows when, and there's going to be a judgment. We live in a world who doesn't like the idea of judgment. We do not like the idea that I'm going to be judged by something and that that something will carry consequences with it. And thus they look at passages like this and go, this isn't, what was the word we kept using last week? Fair. It isn't. Why is Jesus making such a big deal about these people doing this set of things and these people doing this set of things, aren't we here to do our own thing? And we as a society do not like the idea of judgment. We certainly don't like the idea of an eternal destiny determined by our actions here on earth. I was reading a book review this week the book was a uh, collection of writings about hell throughout history. And the article was interesting because halfway through it, it kind of says, and you might be amazed to know this, but there are still people who believe in hell. I'm going, yeah. But as we said several weeks ago, the implication appears to be that since human beings made all of this up, all this, the Bible, they made this up for a reason. They made it up because they wanted to take all of those people who disagreed with them and scare the bejeebers out of them. And that's why they invented this idea of hell. Well, I don't understand that at all. I don't hate anyone anywhere near enough to wish this on anybody. I just don't. The question is, do we believe that there is a God and do we believe that he inspired this word and do we believe that he is telling us what is to be in the future? We didn't make this up. Today, if somebody asks you, do you believe in hell, and you say yes, they're going to get into a discussion about your psychological frame of mind that would produce such a thought. 
It's all about you. Why do you believe in eternal punishment? Well, it's not about us. It's not about some majority of opinion. 51% of Americans believe in hell, therefore hell must exist. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if any of us believe it. If God created it, if God's word is true, there is an eternal punishment. Now, what does hell look like? Well, there's lots of literary explorations about what hell looks like. You can get Dante and you can open it up, particularly if you have one with all the diagrams in it that shows the levels of hell and who's in each level and it goes into all this detail. I'll tell you what I think. I don't know. <laughs> the scripture talks about fire. Whatever hell is, it is probably like heaven in the sense that the words that are used in the scripture are the words that we as human beings can begin to comprehend while the reality is so much greater in the case of heaven or horrible in the case of hell. C.S. Lewis contends that hell is just the separation from God. And that's it. That's enough. He makes the comment that hell is a locked door and the lock is on the other side. No, excuse me. The lock is on your side. You don't want to go to heaven. You don't want to submit to God. You don't want to do his will. You don't want. And God says, okay, that's fine. And the separation occurs. And that is hell. Whatever hell is, it's probably worse than the discussion that's in the scripture. I don't know what it looks like. Do I want people to go there? No, 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 no. But the scripture says there is going to be a judgment and there is going to be a punishment. The question is, are we or are we not prepared for that? So, chapter 26, we get back to the narrative, the discussion about what Jesus is doing. Remember, Jesus entered Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. He cleansed the temple. He had some run-ins with the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and all the other groups. Then he had this long discussion, and that's where we pick up the story. You know what's going to happen, right? Friday is going to be the crucifixion. Sunday is going to be the resurrection. Thursday is going to be the Last Supper, which is in chapter 26. So we're getting up to Thursday. Wednesday, nobody really knows what he did on Wednesday. The general suspicion is he was just resting. Okay? So, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He has been telling them this over and over again. But now he's really specific. Two days from now, I'm going to be crucified. Well, I'm going to be handed over to be crucified. 
Now, they're sitting there thinking, who crucifies peoples? The Romans. Why are the Romans involved? They don't know. We had speculation many, many lessons ago about how much of this the disciples truly understood. But he tells them again. Let's jump to an aside. Then the chief priest and the elders and the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So, we have Caiaphas the high priest. We have his committee, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, gathering together, trying to figure out what to do about Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about Caiaphas. Caiaphas is mentioned in the scripture, and he's mentioned in the book of uh, Josephus's History of the Jewish People, because he is one in a line of high priests. The Romans allowed the Jews a certain amount of flexibility in maintaining peace in order to do the Jewish worship stuff. But Caiaphas is probably, well, he's trying to keep the peace between the, with the Romans. He is trying to keep things calm. And Jesus is a threat. Jesus is a threat to the peace of Jerusalem. He is a threat to the power of the priesthood. He is a threat to them. Why? Why is Jesus a threat? They've seen his power and they don't have it. They've heard his teaching and he speaks with one who has authority and they don't have it. They see the crowds being stirred up and the crowds aren't following them. Remember our discussions about the different groups? The Pharisees, who we've talked about a lot, were very popular with the people. The people held them in high regard, which is kind of strange, but they did. The Sadducees, who were kind of the elite religious people, uh, they were kind of separated from the people. But they were also, in modern vernacular terms, liberal in their theological understanding. They didn't believe in, e in eternity. They didn't believe... The Sanhedrin, the Caiaphas, the high priest, were probably Sadducees. So, their job, as they saw it, was to maintain peace with the people. Now, just as an aside, he is the high priest. What is the function of a priest? To intercede between God and humanity. The priest takes the sacrifice from the people and makes a sacrifice on behalf of the people. He is the intermediary between God and man. What should Caiaphas have been doing? He should have been working on behalf of the people. What was he doing? He was working on behalf of Caiaphas. 
and maintaining his position of power and authority. There's a great sentence in uh, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables where he talks about Caiaphas. He talks about the duty of man is very simple. And one of the duties of man is to keep Caiaphas from being priest. Why? Because when the priest, the person who is called to stand between God and man, is looking out for Caiaphas, he is not doing what God has called him to do. So, they're getting together in the the high priest's home, plotting together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Why stealth? Because they're worried about the crowds. We've seen this over and over again. On numerous occasions, they had the opportunity to grab him, but they were worried about what the crowd would do. And they want to kill him. Now, remember... In Israel at this time, under Roman control, the Romans gave them certain authority. One of those authorities was not to kill somebody. They had no power to execute somebody. So they were going to have to bring the Romans into this to get the execution done. But that's what they were going to do. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, I just think that's humorous. How would you like to go through life being known as Simon the leper? (laughs) Speculation? Jesus had healed him. You know what? That would be kind of cool. Hi, I'm Simon the leper. You don't look like the leper. You should have seen me before. Let me tell you how I got here. That would be cool, right? Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, this is kind of weird. You're eating dinner, and remember... You're not sitting at chairs, table. You've got a low table on the ground. You're laying on the ground, resting on one arm, eating. Okay? That's how the Lord's Supper is going to occur in the next, well, in several verses. You're lying on the ground. You're eating. You're talking to this guy. You're talking to that guy, having a great conversation. And this woman comes up behind you and starts pouring 10W30 motor oil on your head. No, not 10W30, although motor oil is expensive these days. A very high dollar perfume that you would use to anoint a body that was about to be buried. That's odd. Why would she do that? Let's think about that in just a moment. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Woohoo! I am more spiritual than Jesus is. 
because I know that this flask of very expensive ointment oil is very valuable and I could have taken it to the marketplace and guess what? Lots of naked people, I could have clothed. Lots of hungry people, I could have fed. A lot of thirsty people, I could have... Just think of all the things that I could have done. It's like they're trying to impress Jesus about how religious they are. What's with this waste? You're just wasting this valuable stuff by dumping it on somebody's head. And aren't I religious for noticing this? But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring out this Pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Why are you bothering this woman? This woman has offered a sacrifice of worship to me. We can just have a long discussion at that point right there. A sacrificial act of worship toward God. I have trouble conceiving of the sacrificial act of worship that I have done. This woman did what logically made no sense, why did she do it? I know the answer to that question, okay? Well, I think I know the answer. It's not in the scripture, so I could be wrong. I think a little voice whispered in her ear, do it. And that little voice was the Holy Spirit prompting her to go worship Jesus. And what did she do? Oh, no, I'm saving this for something important. What was she saving it for? I don't know. It was a valuable thing, so she could be saving it to sell it as a retirement fund. She could be saving it for the burial of one of her parents. She could be saving it for her own burial. I want to be buried in style. Here it is. She was saving it for something, and the voice of God told her, go sacrifice and worship Jesus. And she sneaks in, and she pours it on his head. The disciples were very interested in everybody knowing what they had sacrificed for the kingdom of heaven. On several occasions, they said, hey, we gave up everything to follow you. And guess what? They probably did. And if they hadn't by this point, they're going to. But this woman sacrificed everything that she had for Jesus. An extravagant sacrifice for Jesus. And the disciples were ticked off. 
Jesus has an interesting sentence where he says, the poor you'll have with you always. Now, he's not telling us, since you always will have them, don't bother with them. Don't try to solve their problem because we saw in the previous chapter where he says, take care of them. There's lots of discussion in the scripture about taking care of the least of these. We're told to take care of the poor. But Jesus is acknowledging the fact that he's going to be here on earth in bodily form for a limited amount of time, and this woman is acknowledging that and making a sacrifice for him. So it's not that he's saying, don't bother with the poor. It's saying that this woman has chosen a different path. Now, the first question that I have for myself is the one that I mentioned just earlier. What's the extravagant thing that I have done? I don't know, I, I don't think I know the answer to that. And if I did know the answer, I wouldn't be allowed to tell you. Remember, do your acts of righteousness. Okay. But the second side of it is when I see someone give an extravagant sacrifice, do I go, that's a stupid thing to do. I could have spent that money much better. And I don't know what the extravagant sacrifices today look like. I do know people who are giving extravagantly to the kingdom of God. I was talking with one of our daughters, and she has moved recently in her previous church. The pastor is, well, he's suffering from a very rare form of cancer, and he's been going to England for treatment. Very expensive, not covered by insurance. Two men in the church gave him their bank accounts and said, whatever you need. They didn't ask. They just did what needed to be done. That's cool. That's extravagant. That's doing for the least of these. How do we respond when we see others being extravagant? How do we respond extravagantly to the work of God in our lives? One more. We've got to get this out of the way. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Why did Judas do this? Why did Judas do this? It is one of the questions that people have speculated on since the day this was first written. Why did Judas do it? There are those who want to try to make a good reason. Okay? He was very eager for the kingdom of God to come into existence. He was worried that Jesus was going the wrong way and he was going to force Jesus' hand. He was going to sit there and he was going to force Jesus to fight back when the Roman guards came to take him. Not knowing that that was not Jesus' plan. He was doing it for the good of the kingdom. Eh, I'm not convinced. 
better answer? He was probably just greedy. Greedy. I mean, let's face it. Let's look at this story, okay? For three years, he and the other 11 disciples and Jesus and a bunch of hanger-ons had been traipsing around the countryside. They hadn't starved. They had eaten. They'd been okay. But, you know, they hadn't really had anything nice. And here Jesus is talking about being crucified by the Romans. The game is about to end. And Judas is looking for an opportunity to take his cut before the game collapses, before there's no more money to be had in the game. He's going to do it. He's going to go and ask for what can he get away with. Let's skip ahead just a bit into the next paragraph. We're not going to read the whole thing, but down to verse 23. Well, back up to 21. And they're at the Lord's Supper, and they said, Truly, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then it says in verse 23, He who has dipped his hand in this dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Let me tell you how this works. And this bothers us to a certain degree. Jesus is going to die. He came to die. He came to die to pay the penalty for our sins. There is lots of speculation if the Jewish people had accepted him, would he have brought in his kingdom at that point? I don't, we're not going to speculate. He came to die to pay the penalty for our sins. In order to die, he had to be turned over to the authorities to die. In order for him to be turned over, someone had to betray him. Somebody was part of the plan. God's plan, so was Judas just doing the will of God? And then if so, why are we giving him such a hard time? Remember the mention briefly, Dante's hell, the different circles of hell, the nice diagrams you can see in the book. Judas is down at the bottom. Why are we giving him grief if it was part of God's plan? Well, here's the interesting thing. Romans 8, all things work together for good. For them who love God and are called according to its purposes. It does not say all things are good. It just says all things work together for good. God uses the bad choices, the evil choices, to accomplish His purpose. But the fact that God uses the bad choices, the evil choices to accomplish his purpose doesn't make the bad choices and the evil choices any good or less evil. And that's what he is saying here. Could Judas have done otherwise? Yes. I am convinced I have no proof of this. 
I am convinced that even after he had betrayed him, after the resurrection, Jesus would have forgiven Judas. But Judas, well, by then he's killed himself. Go ahead. Does it say it entered him or just tempted him? Yeah. There's a discussion. The, the question is about uh, the possibility that Satan entered into G, to Judas. It was a demonic possession. Okay? So there's influences here. That produces yet another discussion that we'll try to avoid, which is whether believers can be demon-possessed. But we know at a minimum, at a minimum, that he is susceptible as we are susceptible. But the question is, was Judas doing the will of God? Well, in one sense, yes. Was he doing the will of God? No. God is going to use the evil to produce the greatest good, which is the salvation of mankind. Judas himself could have said no. Judas himself could have, but he didn't. Instead, he goes to the high priest and he says, hey, what's it worth to you? And you think for a moment, this is weird. They know where Jesus is. If they want to take him, just take him. But you know, we live in a day with lots of lights at night, surveillance cameras, all this stuff. They didn't have any of that. So when Jesus and his disciples go out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, it's dark. How do you know you got the right guy? They needed someone on the inside to say, this is the guy. And we'll have more talk about that when the betrayal actually occurs. So, what is the point of this? God's will is going to be done. His ultimate will of the universe is going to be done. But within the context of the will, of God's will, we have the ability to choose to be on God's side or the other side, Satan's side. We have that ability. There's another long discussion, by the way. When we talk about ability, you know, the drunkard who's been a drunkard all of his life, does he have the free will to choose not to drink? Well, in one sense, yeah. We have our addictions. We have our We've given over, and we've given over, and we've given over. And the next time, there is speculation that Judas, who spent his years as a disciple taking care of the, um, the purse for the disciples, may or may not have been borrowing. That's all speculation. But it showed an interest on his part in the financial well-being of Judas. God is going to use Judas to accomplish God's purposes. But Judas 
is still choosing to do the will of Satan and not of God. And it says in the passage that it would have been better if he had never been born. Judas gets no credit for the crucifixion. He gets blame for the crucifixion. God gets the credit. Because the reality, as we're going to see in the weeks to come, no one is forcing this upon Jesus. No one. You go, wait a minute. They're going to cart him off. They're going to whip him. They're going to beat him. There's going to be Roman soldiers. They're going to carry him. They're going to nail him to a cross. Sounds like force to me. No. At any point of that process, Jesus could have said, enough. And guess what? The Sea of Galilee would have risen out of its banks and stormed all the way to Jerusalem and wiped them all out if he wanted that to happen. The angels would have come pouring out of heaven and wiped out the entire Roman Empire if that's what he wanted. Storms, plagues, whatever he wanted, it would have happened. But instead, Jesus chose to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, that this week we would see those who are strangers and meet them. We would see those that are hungry and feed them. We would see those that are thirsty and give them something to drink. And if that thirst is for water, we'll give them water. If that thirst is for companionship, we'll give them companionship. If that thirst is for the word of God, we will give that to them also. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.